Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, welcome back to the uh, Anthony Gordon Show. Not only a special guest, but, you know, in many ways, someone who I think really personifies the reason why we started the podcast. And I'm not just saying that because uh, Jeremy Gordon is sitting right next to me. So for folks who don't know Jeremy, uh, if you've been anywhere near the cryptocurrency space, and you don't know Jeremy, clearly you've been under a rock. Um, but I think the reason why I realized within minutes that Jeremy is exactly the kind of person uh, that I want to have as a guest is in talking about social media, Jeremy, one of the comments that you made uh, is that you did, this is verbatim, I didn't want to, quote-unquote, sell my soul uh, in order to get social media profile. And I, I can say, and I... I think I say this from the bottom of my heart is that, you know, having a number of very high profile uh, guests, it's refreshing to have someone who is someone who's had success and yet um, is, I think, very humble, uh, someone who has been true to himself, um, someone who is, in the time we've had off, off camera, was able to share with me, um, you know, some of the... Um, bumps in the road and some of the uh the black eyes and the journey of life we all go through so it's really a pleasure jeremy to welcome you to the anthony gordon show thank you so much for having me so i think for our listeners what's important to get a sense of um you know who you are it's fantastic that we actually uh, have the honor of really speaking to you before the launch of uh, of madman which we're going to talk about of made man which we're going to talk about for the listeners' sake, can you just give us a context of uh, a little bit of your journey, your formative years, and how you got into crypto, uh, had a tremendous success, then sort of did a huge pivot, which we're going to talk about? Sure. About a one-minute, five-minute, ten-minute, an hour-long version of story. <laughs> I'll try to make it no more than five minutes. Uh, I grew up in a small town in western Massachusetts, college town, surrounded by farms. Uh, grew up with kind of borderline Marxist parents, uh, was my dad's an academic, my mom works at a nonprofit, was never really taught about entrepreneurship, never met a millionaire before I was in my late teens, early 20s, and really never had entrepreneurial ambitions besides the fact that I had a very, uh, I had very entrepreneurial tendencies. I was a hustler, yep. I, I like started small businesses, I got into more illegal businesses, got into a lot of trouble as a result. Yeah. Uh, and then 
when I was a freshman in college, uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement broke out. Mm -hmm. And as someone that had always been keenly aware of politics and the political system, uh, I developed my own major in college in political strategy, this very combinatorial study. Um, I, I had been dismayed as a teenager by what had happened uh, in the wake of the Great Recession, yep. how the banks had been bailed out. Sure. And I saw this protest movement as a way to kind of reform the banks. And as you probably would have expected, um, it was an utter failure. I mean, yeah, uh, uh, Occupy was this incredible global movement, had the entire world's attention, but we were you know, the organizers were unwilling to make meaningful demands. Yep. They probably paved the route for folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. and, and American politics. But frankly, it didn't accomplish much. Yep. And so fast forward to a couple of years later, I transferred to the University of Michigan, dropped out of college a couple of times. Uh, and uh, I, I got there and I just happened to move in with the young Bitcoin enthusiast. And I was having this. If I press pause right there. Yeah. Before you moved in with it, how much did you know about the space at all? A little bit. So as I kind of alluded to with my more illegal activities, <laughs> I had read in, the, in 2011 in Rolling Stone about the black market Amazon.com known as the Silk Road. Yep. And they talked about Bitcoin in it. And, and I had, in fact been very interested in going to the Silk Road. I actually went to it asking, this is incredible. It's this like online drug and weapon bazaar. It was just fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was morbidly curious and uh, I actually ended up not buying anything. And the reason was because you had to buy this weird Bitcoin thing. And I tried understanding it. I was like, this is way too weird and sketchy. Yeah. But I actually didn't actually buy anything on the Silk Road, but I became aware of it in 2011. And so now fast forward to 2013 and, and in the period that I dropped out of college. Mm -hmm. I had actually been working for the woman who's now attorney general of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. And I became very disillusioned with the political system. I had previously yep. worked for the governor. And just seeing the inefficiencies of the bureaucracy, mm -hmm. seeing how much you spend raising money. True. I realized that I, spending my 20s in politics would just be an awful, soul-crushing endeavor. So I, so, so I, so when I transferred to the University of Michigan, I had just, I had bought some of uh, Bitcoin in the fall, had seen it go up from $200 when I bought it to a thousand in a couple of months. I had sold it all because I thought it was this massive pump and dump scheme, which yeah. kind of was at the time. And I had been vindicated shortly thereafter, but I moved in with this young Bitcoin evangelist when I transferred in uh, January, 2014 yeah. to Michigan. And he convinced me to like actually learn about the technology, not just the speculative components, but the actual value of this blockchain. So he was he more of a techie geek kind of guy? Exactly. Okay. And so I went down the rabbit hole. I really started to find it fascinating. And I didn't have anyone else to talk to because I just transferred. I lived with these frat boys that didn't want to be my friend. And this, <laughs> but except for this one guy that was sleeping on the couch at our apartment. So he convinced me to learn about it. He convinced me to join the University of Michigan Bitcoin Club which apparently was the thing, just like okay. any other sort of college club. It was just a bunch of Bitcoin enthusiasts. And at the very first Bitcoin club meetup I went to, a reporter came working for USA Today, and she was writing about college Bitcoin clubs. So apparently it wasn't just at Michigan, but it was kind of this phenomenon that was taking place. And she had talked to the heads of the MIT and Stanford. Yep. Yep. And the politician in me saw this organizing opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that night, actually, after my first Bitcoin club meetup, I got on a call with the head of the Michigan club and the MIT and Stanford clubs. 
They're all talking about their respective successes and failures, offering to share resources. And at the end of the call, not having contributed that much, I said, why don't we create an organization to bring our Bitcoin club together and to share resources and collaborate on events? And everyone's like, sure, we don't want to do it. You know, Stanford, MIT, (laughs) but but if you want to do it, you can use our name, whatever. Um, And almost shock, shockingly, um, within two to three months, I, I incorporated this nonprofit. I never incorporated a business before. Um, but we had gone on social media. We had gone on Reddit. We had gone on Bitcoin Talk, which was this big message board for crypto back then. And I just said, if you're a college student, you're interested in Bitcoin, join our nonprofit, create your own Bitcoin club, join this organization, collaborate with us. And within three months, we had 100 chapters in 20-plus countries on That's every global continent. And so because of that, I started to get some press attention. Um, I started getting asked to speak at uh, uh, conferences. And most serendipitously, I met this brilliant 18-year-old computer scientist that was at Pomona College, but he was from rural Illinois. Right. And his name's Joey Krug. You know, and we just had this chemistry. At the time, I saw it as this kind of like Wozniak Jobs dynamic. Yeah. In retrospect, this guy's like Wozniak and Jobs. But, uh, <laughs> at the time, he was like, this guy was didn't have the best social skills, but obviously brilliant. Obviously. And so we started working together that spring and through the summer. And we were working on one startup. But Joey decided he wanted to drop out because he was just a freshman. I was going into my senior year, didn't want to because I had already, I had never graduated from high school. I'd already dropped out of college, been kicked out of college, been kicked out of high school. All my parents in the world wanted for me was to get a degree. Uh, but then I found out from Michigan, the dean of the Honors College told me, she called me in and she was like, look, we messed up on your transcript when you transferred. We gave you way too many out-of-state credits because it was a state school. And uh, you're going to have to now get like three times as many credits to graduate as we thought you did. Oh, my gosh. And, and this was not it was a very disappointing moment but it actually would prove to be the pinnacle of my academic career which had been this constant struggle because the dean she was aware of what i was doing with my nonprofit and my startup she was like for the first time in my career i'm going to tell you take a leave of absence drop out of school if you ever need to come back you can but i think what you're doing is fantastic like because i was gonna have to choose between taking like seven classes each semester or or, or dropping out because i could i couldn't i couldn't yep. i couldn't manage my startup sure. at that time uh i had previously been planning to take one class each semester and work on my senior thesis and at, at this point had you accumulated any dough or were you still no bootstrapping this no i was bootstrapping but i had when i was a teenager i had got in a bit of money from my uncle when he passed or right before he passed away to invest in the stock market he had taught me how to invest uh-huh. in the stock market and this was really at the bottom of the recession and so i had invested and this is where i first showed my investing acumen i made a bunch of good investments that you know i think i think it was like it was like seven to ten x my money and in, in uh, stocks. Yeah, in stocks. Uh, but this was at the bottom of the stock market, Amazing. so it was a great. I could have thrown darts out of board, <laughs> but uh, I had done quite well, and so I had a little bit of startup capital, not Perfect. much, but I had a little to have the comfort. And then Joey and I, so I, so I was like, Joey, all right, all right let's let's drop out. And then I got approached by this 
crazy startup CEO based in LA. He's like, I want you guys to come. Oh, I want you to come work with us. I was like, I'm bringing Joey, but like, we'll give you some money to work on your startup and you help us with our startup. We're like, fine. So we drop out, move it, move to LA, I think in September, 2014. And we move out there. The startup we kind of join is a total disaster. Like the CEO is a madman. We're like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> we stumble across an idea while we're working down in LA for a decentralized prediction market platform. It, effectively, it's an unstoppable stock market in which instead of betting on the future price of a company, you're betting on the future outcome of any event. And I had used uh, prediction markets when I was a teenager and in college to bet on the presidential election. And I had actually made a bunch of money because I was this political junkie and I was betting on electoral college outcomes on a state-by-state basis. And I had made thousands of dollars as a teenager betting on elections. And you're you're basing it on an algorithm? You're basing basing it off of the odds. So it's it's like any sort of betting market where, you know, Okay, so, so people are buying yes and no shares. They cost between zero cents and a dollar. If more people are buying yes shares, that an event's going to happen. Yes shares cost more. Wow. So if, if people think so, and effectively you can convert that into understand that as a wisdom of crowds. Yep. So if more people believe Donald Trump's going to get reelected, yeah. and, and, and you know seventy percent of the shares or the money being put in is uh, for him being reelected. You can understand that. So it's 70 cents for a yes share, and 40 then, cents for a no share. And you can understand that 70 cents is the 70 cent pr- probability that the market assigns of the event occurs. The supply and demand. Yes. And I had I, I had been dismayed when shortly after the 2016 or 2015, 2016 presidential election. The, uh, no, no, excuse me. It was right after Obama's election. So it was 2014, uh, 20. Well, 2012. 2012 and then 12. Yeah, 2012, uh, uh, they had shut down Intrade, which was the number one prediction market platform in the world for offering. And that we, it's too much of a yeah, so, to help understand why it got shut down. But it got shut down because it was a decentralized exchange. And so seeing a centralized platform for these sort of betting markets in which you could create a probability of any event occurring in the future was really powerful to me. It was, a, huge. it was a very interesting application of blockchain technology. And I was like, Joey, we have to build this, but we have to get rid of the CEO. Yeah. Like, and so, so we can kind of conspire with the whole team. We're like, let, let's, start it. let's start an entirely new company. Let's move up to San Francisco. Was he a, was he a, a whack job? Or was Total whack job. Okay. Mental illness. So kidding. So he had just had a child out of a wedlock. He was just off the rocker. Yeah. He was threatening to kill people, fire people. Yeah, that, it's not not usually a good song in this year. He was on a rampage. Like that. And I will, you know, I uh, you know, I will say that that event would lead to the largest lawsuit in the history of the blockchain industry. That's what, really? several years later. Yes, this guy literally sued us for the entire market capitalization of what would become Augur. But we'll get to that. So this decentralized prediction market platform becomes Augur. We incorporate it as a nonprofit for all sorts of legal reasons. And I spend the next six to nine months flying around the world, helping the team design the platform, but also raising awareness for what would become one of the very first ICOs or official. So, and Augur was a 501c3. It was a 
It was a nonprofit. So the, okay, so the IRS had stopped granting 501c3 uh, status to open source software foundation. So we couldn't be a nonprofit. Oh, we, see, we, we incorporated our actual legal entity in Estonia. It was very complicated. This was when everyone thought anyone doing crypto stuff was going to jail. Right. It, was, it was very precarious. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing and we couldn't afford lawyers to tell us what we were doing. So I developed the nickname on the team, JG Esquire. <laughs> I literally did all of our in-house legal research on like securities laws, gambling laws, um, commodities laws. And then I would take all my research and hand it to our lawyers and say, do you believe with my thesis? Because there, there was no right or wrong answer because there was no legal precedent. No, you pine, you're pioneering new territory. So we just, so if the, the lawyer said yes, we saved hundreds, if not thousands of dollars every time. Thousand, we probably said tens of, saved tens of thousands of dollars by me doing all of our legal research. In the just, house. okay, for our listeners' sake, if I freeze frame right there, if I'm, if I'm tracking the timeline correctly, so most people would say at that point, either crypto is, if the whole thing's a scam, all these guys are going to be so making it's nothing. Dead. So Bitcoin at this oh, it's point, dead, yeah. Bitcoin was a couple hundred of dollars. Ethereum hadn't launched yet. Then, like, I think the entire market cap of the entire crypto asset industry was under ten billion dollars at this time. So, and yeah. it's hundreds of billions. Of yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so it was. It, it was just no one took it seriously. It had gone up to a thousand dollars. Bitcoin was now at like a hundred, one hundred fifty. No, nobody took it seriously. What were you so convinced then? That it was it was going to have longevity. Uh, I, I I actually when I told my parents uh, when I, I was dropping out, I was like, "Look, I know you hate me right now, <laughs> and, and I understand that Bitcoin's probably not going to be successful. But if there's a five to ten percent chance that it is, and I don't take this opportunity and drop out of school and pursue what I'm doing, I'm going to regret it for the, the rest, rest of your life." What did your folks say? They're like, you're an idiot. Like, you're cut off. Like, I was all, I, I had really effectively been cut off for the past several years, but like, they had helped with my education. Um, but I was now totally cut off. They thought you flipped out. Yeah. And, and then, and it, and it got worse. So, at the end of 2014, after we got rid of the CEO, the one angel investor we had uh, cut us off. And nobody, none of the crypto investors, nobody would give us the money to work on our project. Like, we offered. Like, we didn't even offer equity because there wasn't an equity or tokens. So nobody really understood that. We said, we will give you like a super high interest loan if you give us a loan for the six months until we do this ICO. And prior ICOs had made, raised a few million dollars. So we thought we could do that. Even if it, we, we wanted like a, I think it was like 500K, then 200K loan. And that's all we wanted. There were some very rich people that made money off of Bitcoin. Oh, sure. Nobody would give us money. And, and and we were offering a, a significant return on their money, but nobody would. So I had at this point from my stock investments just under a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and I literally sold all the stocks I owned, every penny I had in the bank account, and I put it all into all of it. And I was just like, fuck it. That's conviction. <laughs> That's conviction. Like, we've got to do this. I like, you know, I've, I'm already all in. I've already, like, my parents hate me. No one in my life believes in me. So I, I've got nothing to lose. It's binary. That's what yeah. I I had nothing to lose. So I put all my money in. Uh, and then uh, and then we did the ICO. We raised $5 million, which was, I think, it was the fourth largest crowdfunding campaign of all time, second largest ICO of all time. And, and were you I, surprised or, or, or were you feel vindicated? 
No, I feel vindicated. Yeah. I, I, when I have conviction, I have conviction. Yeah, so okay. I, I, I was surprised that we raised like five and a half million. That's a lot of dough. Well, back then. No, then, that, I'm saying. Then the ICOs went crazy a couple of years later. Yeah, no, but then at the time, it was a lot. And then I got paid back all my money. And then I put all the money I made back directly into crypto. I like I, I had my token. So you doubled down. Yeah, then I put all my money in Bitcoin and Ether. And, and, and then... Fast forward to a year later, I had become an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm, blockchain capital. They had given me uh, actual uh, equity in the firm or, or carry on uh, on the fund because I brought so many deals in. So I was really learning what it was like to be a VC. Then Augur got listed on exchanges in the summer of 2016. Yeah. Uh, overnight, I was a multimillionaire. Really didn't like it. Didn't really phase me because I knew I wasn't going to sell any of the tokens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but but all of a sudden, I went from having like 10 or 20k in my bank account because yeah. I really only put, kept as much money from that loan that I got back as yeah. I, as much as I needed to live, which wasn't very much. My cost of living was super low, and so then all of a sudden, I was actually like wealthy. Uh, on paper, at least, and then crypto blew up over the coming next few years. I continued to do the VC stuff, but by late 2017, I was kind of disillusioned with the crypto space. I uh, okay. Before we go, because I want to. Yeah. So yeah, this is an end of the crypto story, though. Okay, finish. Uh, finish. No, 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 no. I want you to finish because I'm I'm thinking. Uh, I know what the listeners are, are, want to ask you, but I want you to finish this piece and then I'll. I'll yeah, it's very simple. So pretty much, I was I was in a venture fund. I had invested in a hedge fund, um, in crypto. But the problem was is that I got into crypto because I thought it was going to change the world. It's going to benefit society. It was this new way of exchanging value. You could use it everywhere from digital identity to like food supply chains to the entire financial system. And the investments we were making didn't align with that. You know, they, they, they're including like improving supply chains for like corporations or like set clearing settlement for Goldman Sachs. That's not why I was in crypto. And so I just so that, that that's why you were disillusioned. Yeah, I had I had spent by late 2017. I was now quite wealthy because sure. my my investments had ballooned. But I made but I've been flying around the world for years now, evangelizing blockchain technology as this tool for social impact. And when I wasn't seeing that, and so I decided. Um, in late 2017 to take all the money I'd made in crypto so I didn't have this massive cognitive dissonance and launched my own fund focused on the intersection of blockchain technology, crypto assets, and social impact. Okay, so, so now that's when I launched my fund to Austin Ventures at, well, really technically I launched at the beginning of 2018. The, the, the idea, this altruistic idea, which was disillusioned by what you saw you then rein back in, and your own fund, you could be true to who you were. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't believe in altruism. Like, if well, I, I'm saying, like my theory around social impact and blockchain technology, it's based on uh, network effects. Like, if something's hugely social, socially impactful, it means it's affecting millions, tens of millions, billions of people. And that means if the investment I made affects those many people, they're going to make a shit ton of money. Yeah, I, 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 I could make just as much money, in my view, which may have been naive, although my fund is starting to validate that thesis, that I could be, uh, I could invest entirely in projects and companies that made the world better and still get the best venture returns. Yeah, well, why is that a contradiction in terms? Why I'm making a, a ton of dough and making a social impact? Why is that an oxymoron? It, it, well, if you look at the history of social yeah, but, uh, venture funds, they have all these key performance indicators that make it very hard to make money, and they're yeah. not managed by the most common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, and no. So if you look at social impact in venture capital yeah. in Silicon Valley and outside of it, 
hasn't done very no, well. That's true. So, no, that's very so true. So my thesis was was contrarian to the extent that nobody had really had a social impact fund and been in the top. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, of of funds. Just on a on a two things that I know that the listeners are thinking. Number one, just in terms of your parents and people around you that thought you that you just completely. The wheels came off. Wasn't this? The, no, no, no. no. The, 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 wheels were, the wheels were always on. Okay. So you have to understand that. So, I mean, so I my, you have to understand how I made my reputation in crypto. So the reason why I got invited to the conference wasn't just because of my nonprofit or because of Augur. I was Bitcoin's party boy. So, oh, yeah, so, so, so I was I was the guy that came to all the conferences. I, I had a great time at the the after parties. I always brought beautiful women around. Yeah, yeah. So my So I had this very strong reputation. Yeah, yeah. Which wasn't generally probably isn't something you want as an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist trying to raise money, but I never really had to raise money, so I, I, I got lucky. And my deal flow was unparalleled because every young entrepreneur wanted to, to hang out with me, and they knew I was only going to want to hang out with like kind of a nerdy hacker type. <laughs> if I had a stake in their success, and mm-hmm. so I got all these advisory deals, That's I got all cool. these investment deals, so. My reputation was almost predicated on being this young, youthful, fun guy with these crypto cat, this crypto castle in San Francisco. The question was that a you, Jeremy, being true to yourself? Oh yeah, that was just me. That's being what I'm saying. That was you being you, right? But, so, but you have to understand that the wheels never came up. I was all, no one ever really like people are like, why are you starting a nonprofit in Bitcoin when you can make all this money? But the dividends are paid and the deal flow I would get from all the students that would then come through the nonprofit, go creating a, 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 a prediction uh, or a, an application on Ethereum, which is now the second biggest blockchain. Yep. But at the time, everyone said it was vaporware and everyone involved was going to jail. I just kept on doing contrarian things, but like nothing in my in my crypto career or prior, just my life, had ever been something where like that makes a lot of sense until my most recent venture. And then some people yeah, so, still yeah. were like, why are you going from crypto to cosmetics? Yeah. Like, what do you know about that? <laughs> and they were right. I didn't know anything. <laughs> That's later on. So, okay. Here's what the listeners are thinking right now. Um, number one, do you think, and that's great, by the way, that is a good context of who we are today. Do you think uh, that you're dropping out of school and, you know, your folks thinking that, you know, you're never going to make anything of your life? Do you think it is because you are an out-of-box contrarian kind of guy, which I totally get, or you grew up in a academic stuff home and you sort of felt so claustrophobic that you just wanted to, I wanted to get out of there and just feel free, you know? And then I, I mean, they're not mutually. No, 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 no. I was always super ADHD. I yeah, yeah. Like, like, I mean, I, Every like my earliest memory is like back to when I'm three years old when we get in trouble. Like I was always <laughs> breaking the rules. I was an only child, so like, and I was an only child really before the internet. I wasn't allowed video games. Wow. I, 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 my parents gave me. I think I was allowed to watch TV for maybe like a half hour, an hour a day. So I was very, very, I was forced to kind of make my own fun, be creative, do my own things. Uh, but but definitely lashed out. But you know what's interesting? In the time we had before we started speaking on the show, you know, in my experience, a person who doesn't fit into the box perfectly, ADHD, so you know, doesn't feel like you have a routine. Down the down after a few years, usually they have a compromised self-esteem. They feel you've. I'm not just telling you this, Jeremy. You seem to be very at peace with who you are. You're very comfortable in your skin. You've got a very good centered sense, I think, of 
So, uh, so, 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 I mean, I don't know. I also, no, I, I, no, no, I'll say, I'll say, this, is, this is on word. the level podcast. So, so I was, so beginning when I was 12, I sunk into super bad depression and anger, which led to a lot of the trouble. But what saved my life, and I say this very openly, so I'll say it on your show, is that when I was 14 years old, I took mushrooms for the first time and radically changed my life. A, like, fundamentally altered my perspective on like living on my outlook on my emotions by the time i was on 18 i had total control of my emotions of my mindset of my mentality it did and 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 this is one of the things my mom has said about me and uh and i, I now encourage everyone to read uh ryan holiday's book on stoicism Ego, uh, well, ego is enemy, but the obstacle is the way. I brought. Uh, yeah, I love that book. I bought that book for every member of my team. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. That is what has defined my career and allowed me to be successful. Is that every time I got kicked out of school or suspended or got in trouble, I saw it as another obstacle to overcome. And that 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 outlook, I think, really came from came from those experiences with mushrooms. I would take it once a year, every year from 14 to 18. And each of those experiences was just, it was like achieving nirvana. It was like, it was like literally just like my mind was opened up in such a massive way. And like, I'll I disclaim, I do not encourage young people. <laughs> Don't so, try this at home, listeners. <laughs> but but it, 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 it changed my life. And, and then, and I think I always, because of kind of the trouble and stuff, I had to have, like, I always had high enough self-esteem, which grew, but I, I had a, a very big ego, which kind of compensated for yeah, yeah. low, uh, low self-esteem. And then they kind of flipped through these experiences, was I had less of a need for an ego. My self-esteem rose because I, I, I understood that I had the intelligence to, to, to sure. kind of succeed. I just needed the drive and the focus and to stop getting in trouble, which by the time I was 21, stopped. So here's the question, and, and this is the thesis, certainly a large thesis of the show. What would you tell our listeners uh, that, what would you advise them as to how they can learn to get to the point where you are, where you're comfortable with you, who you are, um, you're able to be true to yourself without taking mushrooms? I mean, look, big proponent of psychedelics, <laughs> especially like there are lots of ways to take it in a clinical setting now. Lots of doctors yeah, yeah. all over the developed world. So that, just expanding the market. Yeah, yeah. So that is like whether it's LSD or mushrooms or more in the medicine sense, ayahuasca, those are all incredibly powerful. What can be medicine so that can be like Not if you're not willing to do that. I mean, there, there are several things that you need to do. One, it, 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 it's, you know, develop like good habits. And I'm terrible at this. So I'm saying this as a hypocrite because I'm not great at this. But things like meditation, cardiovascular exercise, diets, these are all things just that are so good. And then, I, then if I had to recommend one thing that's intellectual, it's one, well, don't spend a lot of time on social media, on your computers. Read books, read yeah. things like The Economist. Expand your worldview. You see so many opportunities. You know, read the classics. Like I think, I think just learning how to learn. This is where a liberal arts education is really fantastic. Don't get a professional degree, like a pre-professional degree. Yeah, yeah. Like afterwards, you can get a professional degree. But for undergraduate studies, go study the liberal arts. Yep. Read the classics. Just learn how to learn. Um, but then there, there are two intellectual pursuits in particular. Ones that have been incredibly instructive for me. Um, 
I started, re I read uh, Sun Tzu's Ancient Chinese Military Treatise, yeah. The Art of War, when I was 16, read it twice a year. That inspired, yeah. Yeah, that inspired me to uh, study military strategy mm -hmm. in college. I actually went to school uh, 45 minutes north of West Point, and I actually was the first non-cadet to study military strategy there. So I... Uh, what, what, what was it, because I'm, I'm also a big proponent of the Audible, what was it about the book that you became such a group. It was the back of the book. The back of the book says in corporate boardrooms across America, uh, you know, Eastern East Asia, everyone reads the Art of War. Larry Ellison swears by it. Napoleon Bonaparte, the eight, the general, oh, think, yeah. general he and Emperor. Uh, it was the only text he kept with him in his yep. saddle. He like okay, like yeah. it, the, the, because it's not about warfare is about thinking tactically yeah and so humans for most of our uh our, our existence we've had to think tactically how to hunt how to survive and we've totally lost this in the in the post-industrial world yeah. because we we don't have any we don't need many survival skills so we don't think tactically and it's something that we're not taught anymore we aren't thought to think tactically to think a few steps ahead to think about what other people are thinking as it affects our actions and so military strategy is one of the best way to understand tactics that in game theory so i studied that a lot so that's another intellectual big, uh, so far we're one for one and and then stoicism stoicism is not i've only started reading stoic books ryan holiday just makes stoicism super accessible i'm a big, I'm a big ryan holiday guy he, but he has these incredible, highly readable books on yeah. stoicism. And I never need to write a, a, a memoir on how I got to where I was because I just point them to Ryan Holiday. Like, no, really, that philosophy of stoicism, I had never articulated it as stoicism because I had never read Marcus Aurelius yeah. or many of the Stoics. But uh, it's, well, I guess you could call St. Augustine and yeah, yeah. that's kind of stoicism, mm -hmm. which I did read in college. But otherwise, reading stoicism is just the best way to overcome obstacles in your life, to diminish the ego, to be the best person you can be. Like, I, I couldn't remember, like, recommend a better school of thought. It's unbelievable. You know, I when I had the production team, we had a meeting. They said, Anthony, you've got, uh, you know, you've got the right background. You've got some great guests. One thing you need to do is at the end of every show or during the show is give the listeners practical advice. This is amazing. I'm telling you, also, Jeremy, this is amazing. I'm, and also on the mushrooms thing, you'll see me uh, smoking this nicotine pen right now. I, it, it's it's not not to be a total stoic, not to do everything that's good for you. Like I've got I've got a very simple life philosophy that I've had for over a decade now, uh, and it's how I live my life. And it, 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 I have to have two things. I have to feel like I'm making a positive impact in the world. Mm -hmm. I have to have fun. And it's this pendulum that I'm always trying to keep. And so the pendulum used to swing a ton when I was younger. Towards hedonism. Yeah, well, hedonism and then also really intense work where I was working, you know, 100 hours, 120 hours a week on the startups and not. And, and it's hyper, hyper Yes. And, 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 and then I would swing to the other end because then I would need to party and get into the yeah, yeah. And it's fine. It's finding that balance. So like. Whatever your indulgence is, and it's great if it can be reading or writing or jogging or just like listening to music. But for some people, we, we've got a more hedonistic side. Yeah, and yeah. indulging in that is okay, but it, it, it's find, finding your limits and never exceeding them. And, yep. and I'm very lucky in that my limits are very high. So I can go to the far flungs of hedonism and not risk jeopardizing everything in my mm -hmm. life.
which some people can't. They get into drug addiction. They yeah, get into really bad habits. I don't really get that far, but I do get personally and psychologically over the long term are harmful habits. And so I went from smoking to nicotine, hookah, not cigarettes, but mm-hmm. I went from smoking to nicotine, which is, you know, a much healthier habit. But like when you when you are living your life with an incredible amount of intensity, which I do, I'm uh, hypomanic, as they call it, yep. and I'm working all the time and I'm always pursuing 100 different things. I need things that ground me. And yes, I could, I'm sure if I really got forced myself to like meditate every day, go running every day, eat incredibly well, I wouldn't need these things as much, but we're all human and understanding that and not totally depriving depriving yourself of what makes you happy is really important to be successful. I I, I have a high, there's no one I know and I come from the world of Silicon Valley, which is yeah, yeah. Uh, big believer. I know it well. <laughs> you know, they like their psychedelics. Mm-hmm. They like their Burning Man. They like their indulgences. Like, but it, it's so true that the highest achievers, like all the biggest names you can name in Silicon Valley, I've either partied with or know someone that's partied with, and they 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 go to that. I push the yeah, right? push it. And, and because it is about that balance. Because you know, life is not just about working your accomplishments and, and being successful. Success is, is so much more than just the work that you do. And, and, and if you're not happy, at least some of the time in, yep. in, in your life, you, you, you'll you'll be on your deathbed and you can have started $5 billion companies, given hundreds of millions or billions to charity, and, and you'll wish you had had more fun. Like that would be your dying yeah. wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, need, you need the balance. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, speaking to you, firstly, you know yourself well, which is amazing, at an incredibly young age. Do you do you think you've got a spiritual side to you? Very spiritual. That, and, and I mean, uh, this is meant in in a, in a uh, in the most neutral way. Do, do you, in your own way, in your yes. own way, speak to God? Yes. I mean, when, so, when so, I say, so it all, it's been a complicated journey. So let me explain. So I went, I went from being raised Jewish, like. Reformed, you know, conservative. But there's a difference between raised Jewish and God-centered. Did you think that God was this, this man at the end of the clown <laughs> that has a religious wife you out? We need to get security so, so, to calm this guy down. So I went to Hebrew. I went to a Hebrew school. I went Great. to Sunday school. And I, one, I didn't like, I, I mean, just for the same reason I didn't like school. I read the Bible and I, or Torah and, and I just, I was like, I don't believe this. It sounds yeah. ridiculous. I, I've always been a rationalist. So I didn't really believe it. And then, so right before I was about to get burned, but I told my parents I was becoming Buddhist. We had lived in Japan for a short uh, period when my dad was teaching there. I had loved Buddhism. The, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the eightfold path, like, yeah, like I, I loved Buddhist philosophy more than any religion I come across, didn't become Buddhist. And, and very quickly thereafter really became kind of a stated atheist and mm-hmm. anarchist. And, uh, and like, just because this was my life was falling apart. Worst years of my life between yeah. like 13 and 15. And then, uh, then, then I, you know, I had these psychedelic experiences in which you have these incredible levels of insight where I, I don't think at the time I felt like I was being spoken to by God, but it was just like it's a transcendental experience. Yeah, sure. And so I became agnostic, and then over the what I call the past decade was a series of of, of revelations that either came from psychedelic experiences uh-huh. or came from 
the profound level of serendipity. Like, like if you look at my life story, getting thrown out of college, then like, then ending up like with this kid on the couch that got into Bitcoin and it got me into Bitcoin. And there were all these series of events that were so that were so profoundly unlikely in in a highly rational world. And then I started to learn about the Big Bang and how no astrophysicist is willing to speculate on what happened before the Big Bang. And that's how all these Jewish astrophysicists are able to rationalize the existence of God, despite them having a highly rational view of the world. I, I developed to be like, okay. And then and then I, you know, that, that then I had a couple of experiences with a uh, well one dmt and then mm-hmm. and then and then lsd uh because i those were easier to do when i got older mushrooms you know you lose yourself for a long <laughs> period of time but regardless um where i almost became steadfast in my conviction that there is a higher level of existence that or or a base layer of existence that transcends our own universe and so i do i think there is an abrahamic version of god absolutely like they're, 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 that's not how okay. I believe God works. I believe, you know, there is a, 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 a level of a base level of existence, one that explains the existence of our own universe and most likely almost surely based off of actually science that's coming out today that there are multiple universes that we live in a multiverse, but it is, it is the base layer that explains the existence of all these universes Okay, so and we, we can go down a deep rabbit. No, this is uh, this is uh, you, 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 you're speaking my language. But, but, but I am but I am highly spiritual. But I don't. Where what I don't do is I don't let my belief or my faith in in in, in this spiritual dimension really guide my actions, except in one circumstance, and it guides, and, and, which ends up guiding my entire life, which is serendipity. When something serendipity That's exactly, happens, okay. so like me meeting you and us having the conversations, like you didn't need to say more than the, the WhatsApp message once you got read a bit about my background. Yep. Like I read that and I was like, all right, this is a guy I need to take seriously. Yep. This is yep. a guy I need to take time for because mm-hmm. it just seems serendipitous. Yep. And when something serendipitous happens in my life, it has never guided me wrong by following it. So that serendipity, which you can tie to my spirituality because I have, even though it's irrational, it, it, it is the it guides every major decision in my this life. is unbelievable so an hour ago we're sitting on your couch and i said to you as an orthodox jewish guy yeah. i don't believe in accidents i don't believe in serendipity in the way you define it in other words i don't believe that there's happenstance that everything that the concept of an accident is antithetical to believing that god is involved in our life i can say the word god and i don't think that's a four-letter word and I'm obviously I spent many years in academia. I'm, I'm a very rash. I think I dispel every stereotype of the Orthodox. You know, I'm not walking around like well, there are many Orthodox Jews. Like, no, that's yeah. true. Okay, well, I mean, I'm not like walking out a fiddle on the roof. Yeah. Whereas you would say the chances of us meeting and there's uh, listen, there's so many things that we just spoke about that that the chances of all of these equations coming together like a Rubik's cube is so statistically remote. Yeah. And you, you don't say it's chance. I say it's God. What do you say it is? I I say, it, it, you know how people talk about the universe, and so, I and I'm like, I, what I tell people is, when someone starts talking about the universe, they're talking about God. What have said? Or Mother Nature? It's, it's all the same thing. It's it's all the same thing. But my my issue with the term God and the reason why I don't use it is because 
people understand the Indus Abrahamic sense, or or, no, or, or even in the Hindu sense. And, and what I believe is that each one of these religions, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Mormonism, it, it, it really doesn't matter. They all they all have a grain or many grains of truth to them. And I think whoever kind of grounded the religion in, in their holy books and their yeah. and, and, and the lessons that they've passed on over generations, they all derive from some incredible epiphany that is true. Yeah, I think and then there's all this filler. And, okay, and, I, and I struggle with the filler. And so mm-hmm. and people have such a strong association of what God is based off how they were raised. I talk about God and they think I'm talking about the God they were raised with. And that's not the I God. Got it. I got it. So, it's the God that is the Hindu God. It's, I got it. It's a Muslim God. It's, it's, it's everyone's God, but it is it is some supernatural entity or, or in my view, group of entities that exists at another level. So be, uh, I, I'm just looking at the time, and I'm realizing that we we uh, it's incre- we should have another part of this. There's so much we can talk about. And seriously, it's unbelievable. Seriously, Jeremy, I came here to discuss the, the cosmetics. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I'm serious. We're gonna have to come. I'm gonna come back. This is this is because I also know our listeners. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why you'll resonate. You'll resonate because one of the one of the reasons why I think this this podcast started uh, developing traction. Uh, is the premise was that most people, and I speak to a lot of people on campuses, so I get a very good, I think a very good sort of focus group. Most people that I know in the millennial generation are not happy. Most people that I know in the millennial generation are living reactive lives and their self-worth is very connected to their net worth and their sense of self is has a correlation to the to the likes and, to, and well you're also missing the the massive level of disenfranchisement that exists among millennials <laughs> like we are the most screwed generation in modern american history if you look at the recession and now covid we are no we, we have been systemically disenfranchised no, I, by a system that inherently benefits boomers like and and, and I, I, got it, I, got it. I, I don't want to rant against boomers but that they they have created a system that inherently benefits them because they've been the ones that have created no, the I, 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 no, I, get, I get it and so this is why i mean i i've written a memoir I've written, I've written, I, I started a reality TV show for a little while because I wanted to speak to my generation and kind of show them a better path. And, you know, it's why I'm active right. on social media because I get to philosophize. I've got a whole highlight reel on my Instagram that's full of my philosophy. I've, I've written a bit on, on Medium. Uh, kind of about my philosophy. It's why I do podcasts and I do and I do press because I get to mm-hmm. talk about this stuff and hopefully inspire people. Um, but, you know, it's, it, the, the issue is and I've learned this the hard way, is it's very hard to tread the path of, you know, serving as an inspiration and motivating people and not seeing uh, being seen as an egotistical, yep. narcissistical asshole that's trying yeah, to, 100%. To, to like preach when, what the hell do I know when I'm 28 years old? And okay. so it's been a very tricky line for me to walk as someone that feels like I have a lot to say and a lot of inspiration I can provide without, without being portrayed in a really negative light. So he has a deal, Jeremy. The reason why I've never asked a guest this before, the reason why I'm going to ask that we have a, a continuation because there's someone waiting in my office, not only that, but I'll tell you why. Because I, I, I think I've got a good visceral sense of the audience. You, you're in an age group. You didn't have these fancy Ivy League degrees that, that uh, gave you this, just, you know, this false start. 
Uh, it doesn't sound like you've got a you know, your trust fund baby that started with 1.2 no. billion. No, I, I, I got a little nest egg, which I turned into more. Okay, but the, the truth be said, I think that our listeners will be able to relate. You've been through tough times. You not you don't shy away from mistakes you made. Uh, the fact that a person can say today of your age on a podcast where we've got, I think, quite an influential uh, group of folks that follow us, I went through a period of depression. I, mean, I think that speaks volumes about the fact uh, that's a more wholesome person, a centered person, a person that um, is not you know, trying to be someone that is not. So I think you're very real well, and you're very authentic. Obstacles the way. If you don't talk about the obstacles, the, you the can't be person. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely ask you if I can if we can do a part two. That's uh, always open. So here's the part two. I want you for the, our listeners' sake because I know that there is you are going to be speaking to a bunch of people that are going to looking at a guy that for sure has had success. I don't see I don't pick up an ounce of bitterness in you. I, I don't I don't think you're a better person. No, I've got a little bit of guilt. That's like my my dirtiest sentiment. Like that's guilt. my worst sentiment because you. Because, well, and this is a whole nother conversation, but because I look at all these kids I grew up with that were so smart, okay, we get, so driven, yeah, yeah. and they, they're not where I am or anywhere close. And then, and then secondly, because I, you know, Martin Luther King and Gandhi were my two biggest role models. When I worked for the governor of Massachusetts when I was 20, 21 years old, I, uh, I, I worked at the Massachusetts uh, Commission Against Discrimination. And like I said, this is a tangent, but I know that if I were black or brown or even Asian or, or, or a woman, no way you could have, I could have done everything I've done in my life. Would have happened? Would have happened. No chance, 0% probability given my socioeconomic status and the amount of trouble I was in. I would not have gotten the second chances. People would not have made the bets on me that they did. There is almost zero chance if I was not a white, you know, tall male that's relatively good looking. <laughs> there's no way. There, there's just so, no okay. way. So I'll wrap this up by saying, Jeremy, did you ask to be, to be born a Caucasian male with blue eyes no, no, no. and be friendly with Anthony Gordon, which is obviously the big tipping point, did you like? <laughs> no, no. And, and, further, and, and furthermore, I've always, everything I've done has been with that awareness. And so it's something I've always talked about. I, I try to invest in the social impact fund. I've always tried to invest in minorities. I've tried, man, to, I've tried to, to give to the right charities. My, not, my, my new startup, investing in incarcerated men and teaches some entrepreneurship. Beautiful. And obviously, incarcerated men are predominantly minorities and from low socioeconomic mm -hmm. uh, status. And so there's... Uh, that you know that guilt is not overriding but, but of all of all the things that i probably like i shouldn't feel guilty because like i said i didn't choose that but i i can't it's something i haven't been able to detach from and it's definitely something that i consider a lot of the time it's it's actually a sign of of uh of mental health because um it it, it firstly it means that you that you're sensitive you have emotions and that uh you realize the, the harsh reality is that that demographically you represent a small percentage. So, folks, here's what I'm going to do because I I know that um, for sure I wanted to get into so Made Man is a, is definitely going to be a company uh, that is going I believe uh, is going to be a huge success. It's going to be a company that all of you folks are going to learn about in the weeks and months ahead, launching shortly. But I think 
more than that, um, I, I, I have tried for this podcast to be a GPS, to give people direction, to empower people with tools so that they don't live lives of quiet desperation. And I, I say this sincerely with humility that Jeremy, I think, is the kind of person um, who I believe is more than worthy of a part two. So we're going to do that. I'm going to sign off by saying, Jeremy, thank you for your time, your insight, your being true to yourself, but just being you. And I'd like to invite you back. That would be my pleasure. Um, I, my doors are always open. Uh, I'm ready for it when you are. And yeah, I, I think we still have a lot more to talk about. Fantastic. This is Anthony Gordon. Until next time, thank you for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.